Hello, and welcome to Edible Ocean Podcast. I'm Edith Wilson, Professor Tony's audio and production assistant. Sorry this one is a little late. As those who follow us on Instagram know, my garage flooded because of the heavy rain here in southern Ontario, so I was dealing with watery issues of a different kind this week. Today we are pleased to welcome Dane Chauvel, founder and CEO of Organic Ocean. This Canadian company provides all sustainable seafood and partners with artisanal harvesters, indigenous fisheries, and responsible mariculturalists. They are a certified B Corporation, a member of 1% for the Planet, and they work with a number of nonprofits in the communities that they service. With every order, they donate seafood for two nutritious meals for those who need it most. In this interview, Dane talks about his childhood, his dad, and how his experiences in business outside the fisheries world provided the perfect background for him to start one of Canada's preeminent sustainable seafood companies. He also comments on the marriage between business and sustainability and is a really fascinating compliment to our previous five episodes, which you should check out if you haven't already. Here's Professor Tony interviewing Dane Chauvel. My name is Dane Chauvel. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Organic Ocean Seafood Inc., it's a uh, business that was started uh, a little over 10 years ago by uh, some fishermen that uh, felt that uh, the existing supply chains were letting them down and not providing sufficient incentive for them to uh, adopt environmentally and socially responsible harvesting and processing uh, programs. So they created their own business to accomplish that. That sounds very interesting. Could you elaborate a little bit more on the history of the organization, you know, how it's evolved over the last uh, few years? I was born into a uh, fishing family. My father was a commercial fisherman. I was uh, raised on the on the strength of a fisherman's income. Uh, my father didn't want me to follow in his footsteps, so he encouraged me to uh, uh, go to school. I did. I got a couple of university degrees, and then I spent about 25 years of my life in corporate finance and technology. On the heels of that, my colleagues and friends and peers in uh, the technology sector said that I should go back to my roots. I'd always maintain an interest in the family business and uh, both see what I could do to address some of the dysfunction of fisheries and seafood as well as capitalize on the emerging movement um, for sustainable food production. I teamed up with uh, some others that uh, shared my interest in this space and uh, naively uh, set out to change that world. And that started in earnest about 2008, so we've been at this for about 14 years and it's proven to be a longer, tougher, bigger challenge than uh, I could have ever imagined. Would you care to elaborate a bit on, on some of the main challenges that uh, you've run into over the years? As I said, I came out of technology, so I came out of an industry that was uh, not terribly capital intensive, certainly not in terms of bricks and mortar and infrastructure, uh, a business that had uh, remarkably high margins and a business that was comparatively easily scalable. And I entered a business that was commodity-focused, very narrow margin, capital-intensive, difficult to scale. And so I went from what I thought was, in hindsight, believed to be a comparatively easy uh, business to one that is 
comparatively difficult. If asked, you know, why would I do such a thing? I think that it's environmentally and socially important. And I was at a point in my life where I could afford to take on environmental and social cause. And if I could uh, uh, overlap that with you know, my interest in what I consider to be my expertise in business, seemed to be uh, a useful uh, thing for me to apply my skill set to. Was there just an attraction to to, get to be on the water more? There's certainly the lifestyle aspect of, uh, of fishing. Um, I'm still an, an active uh, uh, commercial fisherman. I go out every year. And even before I got in this business, uh, I had a fish boat, and I would take my sons out fishing with me uh, in the summertime. And that uh, cemented not just my interest, but their interest in in the space and uh, well they both also got university degrees one got several university degrees they both um, maintained an interest in the space one of them works in organic ocean the other right now is working for uh, Google's moonshot factory in Silicon Valley uh, on uh, plastics and their impact to uh, ocean and uh, other uh, environmental uh, systems Oh, that's that's really interesting. Um, I just wonder if you could give us some idea of what you think uh, been the main achievements of your organization to this point. When when we um, started this adventure, uh, and we'd go into a, a meeting room and we'd start talking talking about sustainability, people would look at us like we had just arrived with an, in a Volkswagen microbus with a goat in the back. I mean. Uh, there was no appreciation. They thought we were out of our minds. Nobody cared. Since then, uh, sustainability has become uh, mainstream almost to a fault, and that is it's it's being commoditized or cliched or greenwashed. And uh, back then, we, we were on the uh, forefront of, of the sustainability movement. Uh, today, I would say we... We still are, but uh, the biggest challenge today is that there's so much confusion around what constitutes sustainability or what's real sustainability and what's not that uh, it becomes incredibly challenging from a consumer perspective, but it's also challenging from a supplier uh, perspective because the messages get mixed up together and uh, the market doesn't know what's real and what's not. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's important. I think you're sort of touching on my next question, which was some of the big issues or obstacles you've run into along the way. So, this slippery concept of sustainability is obviously one, and and who defines it, and in what ways, and so on. Have you, anything more you can say about that? Well, part of the challenge with sustainability is that everybody wants it, but most are reluctant to pay for it. Um, so uh, it's you know, one of these uh, nice-to-haves but not must-haves. And if you're trying to build a business whose foundation is built on sustainability, it makes it incredibly challenging because uh, people say, yeah, I, I, want, I want the sustainability, but um, I can't really pay you a premium for it. And at the same time, you're trying to drive or change behavior amongst producers and harvesters and in order to do so, uh, you have to provide them with a motivation or incentive. One of the blessings of the sustainability movement is that sustainability uh, 
also overlaps with uh, premium quality in, in our case, and that is that sustainable harvesting uh, techniques tend to be uh, led by um, smaller scale, more artisanal producers. They take greater care in uh, not just harvesting but in handling the product and they're uh, providing a, uh, a better quality product to the marketplace. So I, I think really what we're selling is we're selling quality fish that happens to be sustainable. And as a consequence of that, the market is prepared to reward us with a premium for that quality. And we in turn are able to uh, pay our suppliers uh, a higher price to encourage them to continue to uh, adopt and maintain uh, sustainable and quality handling practices. So it works, but it's not working on the strength of sustainability alone. So, yeah, you're saying the because it also goes together with quality, that's sort of the quality end is pulling it along, basically? Absolutely, yeah. If you were just trying to sell sustainability and extract a premium from the market for that, I don't think that you could uh, you could accomplish that. And it's, it's even more acute now in an inflationary environment where people are going into the grocery store and not being nearly as selective as uh, they would be when uh, disposable incomes are high and prices are low. And so, you know, sustainability is one of those things that is probably um, fairly easily uh, compromised in, in the purchase decision when it comes down to uh, um, what's in it for me. So in terms of, uh, you know, uh, sustainably sourced seafood, where do you see the main demand at present being? Um, it, it's, you're suggesting it's kind of limited. Where, you know, where do you see that demand coming from at the, at the present time? Not surprisingly from the affluent and the educated, and increasingly from uh, the younger markets, the millennials and the Gen X is much more heightened awareness of impact on the planet, impact on the oceans, and a desire to do things in a more environmentally acceptable or sensitive fashion. But at the same time, there is this issue of, you know, are you willing to pay for it, or are you only prepared to provide lip service to your interest in it? Yeah, I think your what you said really uh, jibes very well with our uh, consumer survey that we completed a, a couple of years ago. The interest is in particular in higher educated individuals and those who are a bit more well off and with younger people too. Yeah. I, I just, just to add to that, in terms of purchase priorities, I would rank it on the basis of uh, taste, health, and then uh, environmental and social uh, impact. So taste and health above sustainability, yes. 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 And that also uh, coincides with what we found in our survey. <laughs> Very interesting. I don't, I don't think it's interesting. I just think it's, it's, it's natural, logical. I would be surprised if, it was, if it wasn't consistent with what you found in your survey. What you're telling me doesn't come as a surprise to me, and I suppose what I'm telling you shouldn't be coming as a surprise to you either. It's, it, it's, in, it's in some respects a little disappointing in that there's so much hype and brouhaha about uh, environmental awareness and social responsibility that you think that, that that might be the trump card in the purchase decision, but we ain't there yet. 
Exactly. Uh, that seems to be the case. Um, I wonder if you could, do you have any thoughts about what the role of government could be in terms of um, enhancing awareness or, you know, appreciation of making uh, the industry sustainable in future, if we're going to have one in future? I, I live and work in an industry that is so heavily regulated by government, and uh, um, fisheries are managed by government. Uh, my my seafood operation is managed by uh, uh, government, and I am just so underwhelmed by the ineptitude of government that I really do not have a lot of faith or confidence in the ability of government to lead the uh, sustainability or the social responsibility agenda. It seems like a natural, but I'm I'm more inclined to believe that it's going to be market forces that that uh, drives the agenda. Well, you're uh, you know in the salmon fishing end of things, and uh, there is some efforts to. Uh, basically uh, look at and uh, do something about the any damage that uh, salmon farming in the oceans has done to wild salmon stocks. So the, the federal government currently is, is, is moving in, in that direction. Um, any thoughts on that and likely success in that and likely impact of that? Yeah, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm, in fairness to government and policy, I applaud that initiative. Um, I think it's critically important. I think seafood production systems of the future are going to uh, take one of two forms, that you're going to have environmentally responsible aquaculture. Uh, I don't think there's any way of getting around it. It's probably going to be land-based, and it's the only way that you're going to be able to generate the amount of protein that uh, a burgeoning population requires. At the same time, I think that there is a role for are smaller scale artisanal fisheries, both uh, from an environmental food production and social perspective. I think that they help sustain uh, coastal communities and uh, lesser developed nations. And uh, I think that they're a very sensible alternative to uh, large industrialized fisheries. So I think large industrialized fisheries are the casualty in terms of uh, the uh, um, seafood uh, production evolution you're going to have small boats uh, engaged in responsible wild capture fisheries and then you're going to have uh, an environmentally and socially sound uh, aquaculture uh, production sector. Uh, another question just occurred to me. Uh, what are your thoughts about the seafood certification programs available today and, and their success or failure in uh, ensuring a sustainable supply of, of seafood for the future? They're, they're noble efforts. And uh, if it weren't for them, nobody would be doing it. So uh, I, th- I think I think we have to uh, um, acknowledge that. Um, are they perfect? No. And, and one of the greatest challenges that, that I've seen in terms of uh, sustainable seafood certification is that uh, they're, I think in some respects, um, driven by uh, economic reality, and that is large, well-capitalized fisheries can do the types of things that are required to uh, receive sustainable seafood certification, whereas small, undercapitalized fisheries that might be very environmentally and socially responsible are incapable of doing that. And that is a, a circular problem because it means that the small fisheries that you want to uh, support and promote aren't getting the sustainable certification 
hence they're not getting the premium pricing, hence they remain economically underprivileged and incapable of doing things like the scientific stock assessment that's necessary to get the certification. And and so that's a bit of a bit of a trap, and and it's counter to my view that uh, those are the types of fisheries that we should be uh, promoting, and not large industrialized fisheries that, you know, they may get sustainable certification, but they're not without issues, both environmental and social, of their own. Yeah, I think that's been a, a critique, a criticism of the Marine Stewardship Council. You know, the the lack of resources of small artisanal fisheries to get certified and so on. Yeah, for sure. I have uh, just sort of one, possibly last question. I want to ask you, as a, as a fisherman, like, what do you see as some of the main threats to having a viable seafood industry in in future? In terms of, I'm thinking more global threats to the marine environment and so on that potentially uh, really threaten the the possibility of having a wild caught fishery in the future. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. I mean, I was asked recently about the impact of climate change and climate change is certainly having an impact but unfortunately with climate change the the smaller scale artisanal fishermen really isn't going to have there's not much you can do about it i mean it's it's a a large problem that requires a, a large response where we are challenged are with issues like habitat and in certainly in the area where I live, that, that, that habitat degradation comes from urbanization, industrialization, uh, sometimes forestry, uh, and mining uh, practices. And unfortunately, what, is, what our history is, is that the damage has been done, but the remediation hasn't been undertaken. And the the victims in this case are the, are the harvesters. I mean, and, and the response from the regulators has been to uh, reduce and reduce harvest. So that means that the fishermen are becoming less and less viable. As they become less viable, the infrastructure which supports them disappears because you're not going to have plants up and down the coast that offload fish, provide ice, uh, do processing because they don't have the, the volumes to do that. And uh, you again have this circular problem. You contrast that with what's going on in Alaska, where you have very vibrant wild capture uh, fisheries, and you go, what's the difference? Well, a big part of the difference is that they don't have the environmental issues that we have in this problem because they're more remote and they have less population uh, impact. But it doesn't mean that on the west coast of Canada that you know, we, we should accept the our, our destiny. I think that there is an opportunity to uh, rehabilitate habitat, to rehabilitate fisheries, and to uh, restore the viability of, of the industry. And, and the further irony of this is that it plays into the reconciliation agenda, and that is that uh, First Nations and inde- Indigenous people are increasingly playing a larger role in terms of access to fishing privileges. And what will be truly tragic is if they get these fishing privileges, but they're unable to prosecute them, either because you don't have the resource there or you don't have the infrastructure to support the fisheries. Mm -hmm. So if you want to make reconciliation a really viable alternative for these people, you have an obligation to ensure that the underlying environment and fish stocks are, are healthy or else you're giving them beads. That's a very powerful uh, argument, I think, uh, which 
yeah, hopefully we can get a larger, larger audience for that argument. Well, and, and, and you know, that's just one of, one of the many. The, the other issue, and this was certainly uh, underscored during the pandemic, is that uh, we have uh, our own food security challenges. And as we jeopardize or compromise food production systems, and wild capture fisheries is a very sensible food production system. It doesn't involve pesticides or fertilizers or additives. It's self, self-generating. self But when it goes away, it's very difficult to bring it back on stream. And you're, you're even seeing it now when you go into the grocery store with supply chain issues that you go, where's the peanut butter? Where's this? Where's that? Where's that? I mean, as the grocery store shelves empty, it gives the broader population a greater appreciation of uh, the strategic importance of food producers and that's something that's something that that until recently we haven't had the luxury of of understanding or appreciating well i think yeah the experience of the uh, atlantic cod fishery supports very much what you're saying you know once it goes into crisis and the stocks uh, go to a a very low level there's no guarantee they'll ever come back yeah that that's such a classic example i mean that was intended to be a short-term fix and what is it 30 years later and uh it's it's still not there you know one of one of the the you know fortunate things that we have in british columbia is that uh, salmon are a fairly short-lived species their life cycle is anywhere from two to seven years typically four years. So that means that in a comparatively short period of time, if you do things right, you can you can rebuild healthy salmon stock. So that's why I remain in this business and remain optimistic about it is that I see the potential, I see the promise, and increasingly I see the uh, I guess more of the societal interest in doing this, getting it right, and, and supporting it. I mean, that didn't exist as recently as sort of 10 or 15 years ago. People didn't give a hoot about it, but today people do. I want to thank you very much, Dean, for a really informative interview, and I wish you all the best uh, success in the future with your organization. Well, thank you. Every fisherman needs every bit of success they can get blessed upon them, so I I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Edible Ocean Podcast. Tony Winson hosted and did the recruiting for the interviews. I'm Edith Wilson, Tony's audio and production assistant. I also post about our episodes on Instagram. Follow us at edibleocean underscore podcast. Follow Professor Tony on Twitter at Industrial Diet. This podcast was made with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada.